0: We welcome each one in the Savior's name to our adult Sunday school this morning, and we'll commence in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the Word of God. Let us pray. Gracious God and eternal Father in heaven, we thank Thee today we can come before Thy throne. We can look to Thee, we can rejoice in our Savior. We thank Thee for Him who left the splendor and glory of heaven, and came into this world to die for his people. And, Father, as we consider today something more of the history of Christ's church, we pray that thou would speak to our hearts, thou would instruct us, that the great story of these things would thrill our hearts as we consider uh, what thou, O God, did in days long ago. We pray Thou would bless us We do remember the Sunday school downstairs. Bless each child, each teacher as well. And we pray for salvation. And we pray for thy blessing to be upon every service today, that we would know the voice of our God speaking to us. A blessed time around thy table. And, Father, may we rejoice that it is good for us to have been here, for here we have met with our God Come and bless, we ask of Thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. And We're turning again this morning to the epistle of Jude, uh, the epistle of Jude, and we'll take a reading uh, there, the first four verses. <coughs> uh, last week, uh, we moved a little forward in our look at Arianism, into Henry Cook and the Unitarians and uh, Henry Cook was born in the year 1788 in uh, Ireland as it was known at that time in County London Dury, which is now in Northern Ireland uh, but he was born there. He was a Presbyterian minister who stood against the Aryan influence in the uh, Synod of Ulster, the Presbyterian church in Ulster at that time and so we're going to have the second and final part of uh, that uh, consideration of him. Uh, But we'll read the Word of God firstly, Jude, and the verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there were certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And Jude here instructs the church of Christ to earnestly contend for the faith. And that is something that is needful and it is necessary because there are men who have crept into the church who seek to twist and corrupt the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and indeed the person and work of our Savior. Uh, Coming back to the history of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, uh, we have this influence of Arianism. And we considered last week that it is a non-Trinitarian Christological doctrine. And it taught that Christ was a created being, that he did not always exist, and as a result he was subordinate to God the Father. And so he alone is eternal, the Father, he created the Son, Some Arians taught that the Spirit was created by Christ, and the Council of Nicaea, as we have already considered, proclaimed that Christ was the same substance as the Father, and not merely created by him. Uh, Then Unitarianism is anti-Trinitarianism. It's rooted in Arianism. Uh, Dr. Kearns' Theological Dictionary states that in Ireland, Unitarianism caused havoc in the Presbyterian Church. Only the heroic stand of Henry Cook finally forced them out of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And so there was this great theological controversy in the early 1800s in Ireland, and Henry Cook was raised up by God to stand against that. And on occasion, it was basically one man versus everyone else. But he was known as a tremendous orator. He was gifted with great ability, His biographer commented upon this ability and said that this power was already beginning to be known over Ulster. And so we're coming to 1810, 1814, 1818, that particular period. And he preached in 1814 in Belfast on behalf of the House of Industry. And he was asked to come and to preach for this commercial economic aspect of society that seems strange if there was some commercial chamber or union or something to do with businesses in Vancouver you could rest assured that they're not going to come and ask a preacher to bring them a message uh, but in those days uh, it was very common and he came and he preached on Proverbs three twenty seven: withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it And the sermon made a profound impression. It is said that the fervor of his appeals touched every heart, and the power of his eloquence kept his audience spellbound. The sermon then was published by request. It contains some passages of great beauty, but like all his printed discourses and speeches, it gives no real idea of the order. So long as the pen was in his hand, he was calm, acute, logical, In his study, he could analyze a text, arrange a subject with wonderful skill, and illustrate with unequaled fertility of imagination. But in his writings, it is said that there is a certain degree of stiffness and formality. They leave the impression that the writer was under some restraint. When, however, he entered the pulpit, he ascended the platform and saw before him the eager faces of living men. And as he was there looking upon uh, the congregation, Then he cast off all restraint, it is said. His frame appeared to dilate. His face lighted up with enthusiasm. His words flowed. He gave full play to the genius and arguments that seemed cold and formal on paper and now pierced every conscience. Illustrations sketched in bare outline now glowed in the gorgeous color of finished pictures. Appeals issuing fresh from a full heart. And delivered with all the impassioned fervor of manner, look and voice, carried away both intellect and feelings with a force that was absolutely irresistible. And so there was a great reaction positively to his preaching, and he became known across the province for his preaching. However, the congregation, many of them sprang to the feet, they laughed, they wept, reporters had dropped their pencils and sat and listened. Yes, the reporters were there. Uh, They were taking notes of the sermon and publishing uh, the details of the sermon in the newspaper. Uh, That seems a little strange. uh, Today we're talking about the national newspaper. We're not talking about a Christian newspaper, uh, but we are talking about the typical secular newspaper of society. And religion was such of great interest that that is what uh, they did. But they lost some of the passages because they were listening and didn't write it down. And uh, he was sent requests to fill in the blanks in the notes, but the problem was that he couldn't himself remember uh, some of the things that were said uh, as he had preached. And so his fame as a preacher began to grow in the early years of his ministry, and his set course as an advocate of Orthodox theology exposed him to the enmity and hatred of the New Light Party. We saw last week that there was this group, the New Light Party, they were the Aryan Unitarian group, and they sought to push their particular opinions and their views. They didn't come out and, as it were, release books and papers and systematic theologies outlining what they taught, but the simple thread was there, underneath the surface and underneath all that they were saying. And so those who led this party, they maintained an iron rule in the courts of the church. So in the sessions, in the presbytery, in the synod, going in that order, uh, the session is under the presbytery. The presbytery is made up of representatives from the sessions of the individual churches, and then the synod is above that. And so the Unitarians had an iron rule, it is said, upon the courts of the church. It was said that any who ventured to oppose them, especially if young men were assailed with every weapon which logic, eloquence, wit and sarcasm could furnish. The more timid spirits trembled, even the boldest dreaded an encounter with the giants of Arianism. And how sad that is that you have a group of individuals who had power, who had authority within the Presbyterian system, and others felt that if they were to stand up and oppose them, well, that's not a good thing to do. Just keep to my quiet little corner. Let's not get the wrong side of these individuals. And there was so much wrongdoing that was taking place. It was customary for the members of the Synod to dine together, and the wit and irony of uh, these ecclesiastical despots, as Cook's biographer said, flashed as brilliantly and cut as keenly at the table as in the council. After Cook preached in Belfast in 1814, the sermon we referred to, he met these men at one of their reunions, and he was made to feel that uh, his growing uh, fame and attention was not without evils. One of the individuals uh, referred to as Mr. New Light in the biography said, Mr. Cook, I hear you are a great preacher. And in a moment the buzz of conversation and the laughing, laughing were hushed. The rising orator, it was thought, was about to be extinguished. And Cook bowed to the man with a pleasant smile. And Mr. New Light said, I understand the old ladies were in tears and the young in raptures when you preached in Belfast. And again, Cook simply bowed. You evidently have formed a high idea of your own ability, said Mr. Newlight. And in your case, the old, the most brilliant of the adage does not hold that modesty and genius are twin sisters. A murmur of applause ran around the table, accompanied by a laugh. And Cook, it is said, without moving a muscle, turned and pierced his eye upon the man who had verbally assailed him, and he coolly replied, You know, sir, there is no general rule without some exception. Mr. Newlight responded and said, True, quite true. You are an exception. As for me, I have a very poor idea of my own abilities, and I always like to form a humble opinion of my gifts and success as a preacher. And bearing in mind this man was an Aryan, and Cook said, That shows your good sense, and you will doubtless be glad to learn that in this respect the public entirely entirety agree with you. And that was a home thrust. It set the table in a roar because this particular individual was known, as the biographer said, to be as dull in the pulpit as he was ambitious of popular applause himself. Uh, but he tried and attempted uh, to seal cook in that particular way. And so things like that continued over the years. But in 1818, he received a call to the Presbyterian Church in a place called Killilay, County Down. Killilay is but a few miles from Crossgar, where the first free Presbyterian church was founded in 1951. And the leading Presbyterian in the the area was a man called Archibald Hamilton Rowan. He favored Arianism, but his son leaned to the Orthodox theology, the old light theology, and was a supporter of Henry Cook. In 1821, the Unitarians from England sent John Smithhurst to Ulster on a preaching mission to spread Unitarian theology. He came to Killile and was confronted at a meeting by Cook and Rowan's son. The announcement that came from England uh, and went round the churches was such that the Reverend J. Smithhurst from the neighborhood of Exeter, being appointed by the English Unitarian Fund to visit the province of Ulster, intends shortly to commence his. Missionary labours by preaching in Belfast, Carrickfergus, Lisburn, uh, Downpatrick, Killile, and adjoining districts. His object will be to advocate the cause of Christian truth without any reference to sect or party. And so he was not a volunteer. He had been sponsored and supported by the Unitarian Presbytery in Ulster at that time. And so uh, they were involved in bringing this man over and in getting him to preach around the churches. One Aryan minister wrote to another Aryan Presbyterian minister and said that Mr. Smithhurst had come from England to explain our doctrine more fully. He was advertised as declaring Christian truth rather than promoting any particular sect. And under that guise, it is said that he was smuggled into many Orthodox pulpits. And there he sealed the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course... As Cook's biographer said, an apostle of Arianism must do so. He went further. He insulted Trinitarians. He touched upon the doctrine of our Lord's divinity and made horrible expressions, it is said. He concluded his address with political aspects, political views, promoting and advancing liberalism. He was at first successful. His... Free theology and political creed attracted the multitude. And the New Light Party anticipated great results, but they were doomed to disappointment. Smithhurst came to Killile, and as we've said, there were fewer Aryans there. They were patronised by Archibald Hamilton Rowan, but Cook's public preaching, Captain Rowan the Son, his private labours, had helped to undermine their influence. And it was thought and believed that a visit from this particular man, Smithhurst, would help their declining cause. A house uh, was set aside for the meeting, his visit was announced, and people came from far and near to hear what this particular individual had to say. Among the first to take their places was Cook and Rowan. And the lecture from Smithhurst is recorded as being brilliant in what all was said. New light views, political views, theological views were expounded and glorified. And the orator uh, concluded amid thunders of applause. And they thought there was triumph. Then Captain Rowan stood up. He said, I've listened, sir, with deepest attention to your lecture. I've heard your doctrines with much surprise. They're not the doctrines that our pastor teaches. He is here himself to say so and to tell you in this meeting that the views you have propounded are opposed to the word of God, instead of being quiet and letting it just continue. He got up, he got involved, he took a stand, and this man was respected in the community. And therefore, what he said went through the meeting as quite a shock. Smithhurst began to feel that the meeting was no longer his own, but he declared his readiness and wish to discuss each topic with any objector. And so Cook stood up, but he was not going to be taken at that disadvantage. And he said that, You, sir, you've taken your own time. You've taken your own mode for invading my parish and stating your views. And he said, I will choose my own time and my own place to respond. He said he declared his doctrines to be false. And he invited the assembly and the whole of the village to his church next Sunday. And he invited Smithhurst as well, and he pledged that fairly he would review and refute by scriptural arguments every dogma you have this day propounded. And he said, when I have thus removed the evil impression I made on the minds of my people, I shall be ready to meet you in public discussion here or elsewhere in Ulster. And those words spread through the village and the surrounding areas, and Uh, They spread from mouth to mouth, from house to house, throughout the parish and the county. And on the Lord's Day, the Presbyterian church in the village was filled in every part. Many clustered around the doors and the windows uh, because they couldn't get into the building. There's no fire code in those days, uh, so they didn't worry about that. Uh, But there was still no room uh, to get in. We couldn't have that here because we'd be in breach of the fire code, but we can imagine... Uh, people uh, sitting on the pews, people sitting and standing on the aisle, every single place available, and there's still people peeking in through the windows uh, trying to hear and see what's going on. It was a quiet village, but yet this had taken place, and many came from afar. And so Cook stood up and preached. His discourse was worthy of the occasion, and he tore the arguments by Smithhurst uh, to shreds, to Adams, Uh, By logic, he impressed upon his hearers uh, the importance of the word of God and the doctrines which God in his holy word placed before them. And he said, will you suffer then vain man to rob you of God's noblest gifts? Will you accept a withering philosophy for the life-giving truths of the Bible? And he said, forsake not, beloved brethren, the faith of your martyred forefathers Rest still upon the rock of ages, Jesus the Lord. God manifest in the flesh. Then, then only you will be safe. For being founded upon him, you will remain a building of God, firm and steadfast amid the ruins of the universe. And the appeal was irresistible. The first shock of the Aryan struggle had taken place. It was a victory for truth. Aryan influence was extinguished in the area. And Smithhurst came no more. But Cook was not done. Smithhurst tried to ignore Cook. And hearing that he had went elsewhere, at the close of his sermon, he said that he would follow him from village to village, to, from town to town, through Ulster in Ireland. And he said that wherever Smithhurst went to promote Arianism and to promote heresy, he would follow. He would expose it and he kept his word wherever smithhurst lectured cook followed and every pulpit was open to him thousands crowded to hear him and they listened uh, to his uh, expositions pointing out error and promoting truth and so it came to the point that the unitarian the unitarian fund from england realized that this is too much and smithhurst left the new light party saw that their cause was suffering in the hands of Smithhurst because of Cook. And so his labours were enormous, his success was complete, and Smithhurst fled from Ireland and went back to England. And so Cook was recognised then as the champion of biblical truth. Sand to say that it was Cook, there was no one for doing this, and there was. No other man who rose to the challenge at that particular time, really before he did. But as time moved on, and of course we could talk and talk and talk about all the events that took place in those days. But the battle raged long in the synod. This was not a disagreement for a few months or a few years. But this battle with Arianism raged constantly. The Arians were not turning round and admitting openly that uh, they were Arians and believed in this doctrine, uh, but rather it was something that was under the surface. The battle raged long in the synod. The synod of 1826 was not favorable to Cook, but the next three synods in 1827, 28, and 29, it is said that he carried all before him. And eventually, all synod members had to believe a Trinitarian Declaration of Faith, A select committee had to examine candidates for the ministry and the Arians were cornered, as it is said. They left in 1830 and formed their own synod. They eventually became known as the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church of Ireland. Presbyterian ministers then from 1836 had to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and from 1840 elders had to subscribe to that same Confession. And, of course, that carries through into our denomination. We split in in 1951, and that subscription of the Confession of Faith continued. And in the Free Presbyterian Church of North America, we do the same today. When I was ordained here some months ago, I had to sign and subscribe that I believed. The Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter Catechisms to be an expression of my own personal faith and promise to uphold that and teach that, not because we're upholding and lifting a confession, but rather the truths contained in that confession are biblical truths. And those truths outline the importance of the Trinity and outline the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing that, it meant that a man who did not believe in the Trinity could not in conscience sign that he believed that particular confession. It was a safeguard, a safeguard against error. And it is a safeguard against error when we think of the great depth of the Scriptures. The confession explains systematically what is taught. The Shorter Catechism, which perhaps many of us have read, simply goes through doctrine and explains what we are taught. And often when I come to consider a doctrine or to preach a doctrine or to include something of a doctrine in a sermon, well, often you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the catechisms, because there's your definition. You'll have heard that many a time. The shorter catechism says, or the larger catechism says, because it's a clear and definite statement of doctrine. And so it is a framework of doctrine and theology. But coming back to Cook and the Synod in 1827, the Synod was looked forward to with with intensity and anxiety. Both parties knew that there was going to be a struggle. And this was one of the great Synod meetings that led to all of those things I've mentioned. And there was reports that came before the Synod. They contained revelations about Arianism It attracted the whole Presbyterian church. Arianism had existed in the synod. It was known. Uh, But as time moved on through the influence of Cook, it was more and more known. And uh, it was a controversy that had the eye of the entire denomination upon it. Cook and the synod met in Straban. There was a moderator elected. And as soon as the meeting uh, was constituted, uh, the clerk of the presbytery or the synod had avowed himself to be an Arian. And one of the men stood up and moved that this particular individual, having publicly avowed himself to be an Arian, be no longer continued clerk. And therefore, because of his views, they didn't want him in a position of influence within the synod. And there was a debate then that followed immediately. It was long and stormy. And so as as he was known to have always discharged his duties with ability and fidelity, uh, there were those who said that he should continue in that particular office despite his theological views. Uh, but as, as the debate moved on, and the debate was not just a half-hour discussion, but it went on and on and on throughout the course of a week. Henry Montgomery, who was Cook's chief opponent in all of this, he stood up, his appearance, his powers of speech were known. And as he preached, I think I said this last week, as he presented his arguments, he attacked the orthodox views. His followers believed that he had won the day. And then Cook stood up. And he tore apart all the arguments. He spoke for a lengthy period of time. And by the end of it, the synod, was in support of what he had said. And what had happened at the end was one of the great shifts in the synod toward the then removal of the Arians from the denomination. So the history goes on and on and on. That's only a little snippet. I remember when I was at Bible college, I was taught historical theology, Sometimes when it came close to exam time, uh, the subject name changed from historical theology to hysterical theology, uh, because there was so much to learn. Uh, But uh, Dr. Paisley uh, taught that class. He came in during my first year, and he gave us a book, a new book on the course to study. I think we were given the book about March time, and the exam was in June, and we had to read 500 pages of the biography of Dr. Henry Cook. And so there was a lot to learn. 500 pages had to be read and summarized all within a few months. I went away to preach in a church for the weekend. And I remember arriving first thing on Saturday morning. And I went to the bed and breakfast that I was staying in. I then had the use of their dining room. And all afternoon and all evening, I sat there... Uh, going through this book, making summaries, reading it, uh, trying to get ahead because there was so much had to be done. It was a lot of work. But it was very interesting to read that book and to read what happened during that particular time. And Henry Cook and others, they stood against the flow. The flow was Aryan and it was influencing churches. It was killing churches. And as we saw Uh, Last week we mentioned that it was hindering their evangelicalism. It was hindering evangelistic endeavors. The life of the church uh, was being destroyed by this. And there were men who stood against the flow. The Arians had their iron grip upon the synod and upon the churches. But we find that there were men who were prepared to stand up and say, No, no. This goes no further. Henry Cook was quoted as saying, either uh, we put the Arians down or they put us down. He wasn't talking about killing the Arians. He was talking about putting down their theology, putting down uh, their membership of the Presbyterian church, putting down their influence in the synod. Either we put them down or they put us down. Many will say, well, that's not very loving. But yet we find that these individuals were corrupting the doctrine of Christ, teaching heresy, influencing the church. And therefore, Cook's position was right. Either we put the error down, or the error will put the church down. And that still applies today. There can be errors. There can be issues within congregations, within denominations, There can be herbs being taught and spread. And for the cause of truth, either the error has to be put down or the error will grow so much that it will affect the church and basically put the church down regarding standing for the truth of God. And so he stood for Scripture. He stood against the flow. He's known for his stand of truth. One of the old Free Presbyterian ministers, Dr. S.B. Cook, He said that God does not bless apostasy. God does not bless false teaching and God does not bless another gospel. And there is a need to preach the truth of God. Proverbs tells us to buy the truth and sell it not. And today, do you value the truth of God? Do you value the truth of God? S.B. Cook spoke some time ago and he, he said this, he often would have spoken about uh, free Presbyterianism. One of the sermons he preached was free Presbyterianism, why? And I believe it's on Sermon Audio. And I think I took this extract from potentially a written copy uh, of that sermon. And I encourage you to go and listen to it. It tells you something of what the early days were like. Uh, later on, the Presbyterian Church had changed. Revival came 1859. But after that events took place that led to the formation of our denomination in 1951. But S.B. Cook said, I remember years ago, and he said, I always relate this subject when I'm, or this story, when I'm dealing with this subject, because it has a great burden on it. I was a second year student, I was in a second hand bookshop in Belfast, and that bookshop, he said, had long since been destroyed by terrorism. But he was in there, and he met this other man that he knew. He was studying for the Presbyterian ministry. He'd been saved through Dr. Paisley, but had decided to go into the Irish Presbyterian ministry. And when we met up, he we began to talk together, and he said to me, are you still with Paisley? And he said, I am. You know, I'm still going on for the free Presbyterian ministry. And he replied, you know, when you hear Paisley talking about the professors in the college, the Presbyterian college, you would think that they were men who ran about with horns sticking out of their ears. And going back to 1924, there was a heresy trial for one of those professors, so there's a lot of history regarding that. And he replied and said, Mr. Paisley is not talking about their personalities. He's talking about what they teach. And he added, don't tell me that you don't hear teaching that is contrary to the word of God in the college. And don't tell me there are no liberals or modernists or apostates in your denomination. And he said, of course. He didn't take up that challenge. And he said to him, I says, you're in the Presbyterian church. When you get ordained, you'll become a member of that presbytery. In that presbytery, you'll be involved in participation in the licensing, ordaining, and installing of men. Suppose there comes a time when a noted liberal, modernist, or apostate, or whatever you want to call him. But the fact is, he doesn't believe, he doesn't want to subscribe to the confession of faith. He doesn't agree with the fundamentals of the faith. And that has happened in the last... 70, 80, 90 years. Suppose you have to participate in his ordination or installation or licensing. What are you going to do? Are you going to get up in front of the congregation and say to the people, support this man. Give off your ties to support his ministry. Influence others to come and sit under his ministry. And S.B. Cook said, I never forget what he said. He said, I would turn a blind eye to all of that. For the great advantages I would get. I belong to the largest. Protestant denomination in the north of Ireland. Who knows when I get a call. I could go to a congregation of 2000 families. I will be able to exercise. A great influence among them. And amongst those people. Whereas he said you're with nobodies. You will probably end up in some back street. Preaching to twos and threes. All the days of your life. And S.B. responded, he says, I don't know what God has for me as far as my ministry is concerned, but even if I have to speak to the twos and threes all my life, I will not be party to any licensing, ordination, or installation of any man that I do not know is a born-again believer and will preach the truth. I will have no part in it. I will not be a partaker of his evil deeds for any advantage that may come my way. And they parted. S.B. Cook went into the, Pre- the Free Presbyterian Ministry And this Irish Presbyterian went into his ministry years later. It was said that he seemed to put a question mark over the fact that hell would be eternal or not. This man finally left the ministry. He emigrated to Canada. That's not a bad thing, I suppose. He emigrated to Canada and began working in secular employment. how sad it is that there are those today within that denomination so blessed by the stand of Henry Cook so blessed by the revival that came a few years after that stand that now it's as if the clock has just been turned back the stand was taken but it was forgotten there's a statue of Cook I said last week in Belfast a reminder of him and his ministry and his stand, but it's largely been forgotten. Largely been forgotten. But when we think of the stand the Cook took, patience is a virtue. It took time. It took time. In the synod, In 1822, it is said he stood alone. How discouraging that was. But five, six, seven years later, things had turned around. Battling for truth is not easy. But there is victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep our eyes upon him. We need to pray the Lord would bless the stand that we take. And that stand would continue. How easy it would be to take a stand. And we see that. And then forget and just go on into error and apostasy anyway. Dr. Paisley wrote a book in the 1859 revival. And he quoted the words of Henry Cook some years before that revival. He said, Let the dangers with which you are threatened lead you nearer to the God of salvation and render you more familiar with the throne of grace, looking for grace to help you in time of need. The great fault of Protestants, the fault for which they have suffered, and speaking a contextual issue here, and if they discover it not and mend it not, for which they will suffer again, is their trusting in princes and in men's sons and not in the living God. Experience of the past should have taught us that we could trust our destinies to no man, to no individual, to no party. The scenes that are every day occurring around us should teach us how little the bare name of Protestant is to be trusted when our lives and destinies are thrown into scale against the ambitions of office. He wrote just over a month before he died to the Protestant electors of Ireland, and he said, Fellow Protestants, be faithful to your country, to your religion, to your God. Be watchful against the insidious advances of popish error. Be united in defense of liberty and truth. And he who ruleth king of nations will bless and prosper your cause. Farewell. May we be encouraged and challenged to earnestly contend for the faith, to put the Lord first, to live for him, and to have no time for error, no time for heresy. We've seen how that can affect and destroy a church, but let us stand for truth. And let us learn from the stand of such men as these. Let us remember then. Let the lives be a challenge to us. May the Lord bless for His name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee this morning for Thy Word. We thank Thee for this history. though it be in a time long ago, it would be in a country far away. We realize that... Certainly, part of our history lies there. And we thank Thee for the history and the heritage that we have. But, O God, we even see in the Scriptures how heritage and history is nothing if we do not continue in our love and our obedience to Thee. And, Father, we pray that we would be encouraged by these events of the past to stand for Thee and, Lord, to boldly proclaim the great truths concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank thee for men like Henry Cook who took a stand unashamedly for thee. And oh, the hardships that were endured. And we pray, Lord, that would continue to raise up men who would not care what others think or say about them as long as they stand for the truth of God. Lord, give us a love for thy truth. Give us a desire to stand for it. And bless us, we pray. And do us good as we come now to worship, as we come to partake at thy table later on. Lord, close us in with thyself. And may uh, we have that preeminent love for thee and for all that thou hast done for us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.